Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Our conversation today will spotlight the COP26 conference, including the steps being taken by participating nations to achieve net zero emissions by the middle of the century and the opportunities that exist for investors as a result of climate change prevention initiatives across the globe. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back a Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as glad to welcome to the forum Michelle Dunstan, Chief Responsibility Officer and Portfolio Manager with AB. So Amantia, Michelle, it's great to be with you both and thank you for spending some time with our listeners and our clients. Plenty to cover on today's segment, so let's get right to it. And Amantia, as a starting point, maybe to give our listeners, our clients, a bit of background about the COP26 conference. Can you speak, Amantia, to what is the significance of the event and what do the countries attending hope to accomplish through their participation? Thanks, Dan, uh, and great to join as always. Um, so, yeah, let, let's get to it. The COP26 conference or summit is happening uh, in just a, a, a few weeks and days, starting on November 1st um, uh, of uh, uh, well, November 1st, obviously, and running until the 12th of November for a week and a half. Um, what COP stands for is the Conference of Parties, uh, the one of the multiple acronyms we have here in our industry. And really what COP is, is um, a, an opportunity for the signatories of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change um, to get together to coordinate design and review plans that address the risks of climate change. Um, the first COP meeting, just as background, was held in 1995. So we have a, a really strong tradition here of these meetings. And at COP3, uh, you know, three years later, um, the Kyoto Protocol was adopted, which introduced the first greenhouse gas emission objectives, as well as the first um, emissions trading mechanisms that, that we have talked about and, and you know, will continue to talk about uh, in, in these podcasts. Now, the Paris Agreement, um, which many of us have sort of heard a lot about, um, took a long time to achieve from, from global leaders. It was only at COP21 in 2015 where the Paris Agreement was introduced and signed, and this was the, the agreement that uh, introduced the goal to keep the rise, to limit the rise in global average temperatures to well below 2 degrees Celsius and preferably limit, limit it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, another provision in the in the Paris Agreement was that um, each nation that was a signatory of the agreement would develop and and publish or submit every five years a um, its own individual climate action plan, which determined how it was it was planning to. Um, abide by the agreement, uh, the, the Paris Agreement. So these individual climate plans called the Nationally Determined Contribution Plans, or NDCs, another acronym, um, were to be reviewed every five years at every fifth, fourth or fifth COP meeting since Paris. So the reason why COP26 is very important is because it's the first opportunity we have here since Paris to come together and take stock of the NDCs and of the progress and commitment that governments have made. And um, the, the UK presidency of the COP meeting for this year has outlined four goals for the, the broad conference. Mitigation, adaptation, finance, and 
operation. So a lot of work has been happening really behind the scenes throughout this year, um, and, and we've previewed and discussed some of it over time, but uh, to lead to this, this meeting, which will be a culmination of, of governments coming together to negotiate what their additional commitments would be. And what, what we expect is to see a series of additional commitments, additional announcements, and then broader just signaling to markets uh, and to societies on, in how our world and, and different leaders from across the world are planning to uh, help mitigate these issues of climate change and also how we're starting to look at adaptation and additional financing. One important other thing to, to note is that while all of this is um, very ambitious and aspirational and the UK presidency has set some very uh, significant ambitions for the outcomes of the meeting, um, the meeting is really happening with the backdrop, backdrop excuse me, of a global energy crunch with energy prices rising, um, as well as with the backdrop of just, you know, the local domestic politics that each of these leaders are bringing into the meeting as they come in to negotiate on behalf of their nations. So, and, and this local context and the geopolitics around it is very important, and that's what we're watching as, as we're, you know, looking at, for example, how... Uh, uh, the, the United States White House has a very ambitious green policy agenda, which is likely to retain many of its initial key provisions, but has been uh, under sort of significant negotiations and the ambitions have been pared down from the very first proposals of a couple of years ago or a year and a half and sort of during the campaign. Um, so the U.S. is, you know, has specific pressures going into these meetings. If we look over to China, the, the uh, President Xi Jinping has committed to peaking Chinese coal production by 2030 and to achieving net zero um, by 2060. Um, however, you know, we, we recently saw um, that an official government progress report showed that most Chinese provinces lagged behind their annual, annual energy intensity reduction targets. And this led to um, some additional restrictions that, that were imposed, which uh, had sort of um, adverse effects on, on energy prices, uh, sort of against the global backdrop. The European Union, very ambitious targets um, that, that have been outlined by the European Union Commission, but still uh, have to be finally kind of approved and ratified going into next year uh, by all of the member states of the EU. So all of this backdrop, you know, is very important for us to consider uh, as we think about kind of the reality of our world and the, the objective here of moving towards decarbonization. Well, Amantia, that was very helpful context, background on COP, how the conference has evolved and grown over the years, uh, the scope of participants and what the focuses and mandates have consisted of. So maybe we can dig into this a bit deeper. And Michelle, I do want to welcome you into the conversation. I know, Michelle, as of June 2021, 59 countries representing nearly 55% of global greenhouse gas emissions have communicated net zero commitments by 2050. Very ambitious. So, Michelle, a couple of questions. Can you speak a bit more on what this means and the sort of commitment and efforts it is going to take to make these aspirations possible? And further, are these commitments viewed as sufficient and realistic for solving pressing climate issues, or can we expect more pledges and commitments to come? Yeah, that's a 
really good question. As you mentioned, first of all, not all countries have committed to net zero. It's only the 59 countries representing about 55% of global emissions. We'd also be remiss if we didn't talk about companies or corporations. It's one thing to say a country's committed, but you actually need a lot of the actors within your country's ecosystem to also commit. So we are seeing net zero uh, commitments from corporations too, but they're lagging further behind. According to MSCI, less than half of all companies listed in the MSCI All Country World Index don't have any climate goals that align with any temperature target. And only 10% actually have goals that aligned with 1.5 degrees. So we don't have um, commitments from either the majority of countries or the majority of corporations. And second, for those countries or the corporations that have made commitments, it's very unclear how robust their strategies are for achieving that. We know that the countries as a whole have actually not made as much progress as we'd hoped against their goals. The corporate pledges are newer, so the jury's still out on how successful they will be. Around COP, I think we're going to see more pledges from both countries and corporates that have not signed up. And what I'm hoping to see is more detail and more disclosure around how these entities are actually going to achieve net zero. I do think that corporations and countries across all sectors are starting to realize that climate change is fundamental to financial performance and that it's impacting their cash flows and valuations today. And we as asset managers often have to do a lot of education and explain why we care about addressing climate change. It's not just the right thing to do for society and the world as a whole, but it actually makes you a better company. Companies that are addressing climate change today are better prepared to succeed in the world tomorrow. One example I like to use is picture a company that has a factory that emits a lot of carbon. Is carbon being taxed in the jurisdictions in which it operates today? Then you should think about that in your financial performance. If it's not taxed today but is going to become taxed at some point in the future, you'd want to understand the impact of that. Even if there is no taxes but regulations are going to change and this company is going to have to install scrubbers or upgrade its equipment, that's going to cost them money. And what about less tangential things? Like, is a competitor developing a new lower carbon alternative? Consumers are making different purchase decisions. Is your company going to lose market share to that company or have to invest to duplicate that product? And what about employees? The younger employees in particular are increasingly making value-based decisions on where they want to work. Companies that have high carbon are moving down the ranks of desirability for new university graduates. What does that say about a company's uh, capacity for technological innovation or keeping costs low if they're getting bottom-of-the-barrel talent? All of these things are impacting corporations today. So recognizing that climate change members matters to everyone is step one. And if countries and companies can get on board with that, change is actually going to happen. Well, it's interesting, Michelle, to hear how the private sector fits into this. And it sounds like there's more work to be done on the corporate front, though. The outlook for commitments, efforts from private enterprise, it does sound promising. And to that point, Amantia, with governments making these large commitments to address climate issues, how will industries or even individual companies be affected by their efforts? Thanks, Dan. I mean, this is, it's such a natural question following through what, what Michelle was sharing about her view on, on how companies could be impacted and how, as an investor, you think about it. And we, we really couldn't be uh, in, in higher agreement on this point. Um, to answer your point more directly, just broadly in where we're seeing potential impact on companies, I'd say there are, I think, four things, four questions we have laid out um, that we're watching when it comes to COP. 
So the first one is, um, will there be an additional, more firm alignment by governments and companies around the 1.5 degree objective? And is this possible? Or where, will there be an implicit sort of agreement that really what we're all racing towards is two degrees? Why is this important? So the, the recent uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change report that was published in August of this year found that uh, in order for the world to be able to meet this 1.5 degree objective, it needs to really um, undertake, sort of in their words, immediate and large-scale reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. So this research, um, which which really informed, in our view, a lot of the COP discussions, means that we still have the window of opportunity here to commit to 1.5 degrees and move towards it, but it would imply very significant, more draconian almost, um, incentives and commitments uh, and changes across society and globally, across companies, what how investors are looking at companies and what governments are incentivizing or regulating. Um, and so watching whether th- there will be a more explicit commitment to 1.5 or, or so unacknowledged uh, or kind of, you know, if countries will remain silent on it, implying let's move towards two degrees is something that we'll be paying attention to. And this will be important, again, because there will be then potential downstream implications from this type of commitment. Um, secondly, another thing that we're watching is, you know, one of the biggest discussions here at the heart of this of this question is what's the global energy mix going to look like? And, you know, coal and the phase out of coal as an energy source being the, also the highest greenhouse gas emitting source um, among the ones that are kind of frequently used, widely used, will, will be at the core of it. So there's a broad, I think, understanding that, that we're moving towards phasing out of coal. But really the critical question to watch here is timeline. You know, by when... Uh, are, do we think that government and, and just broadly industry is looking to um, target phasing out of coal? And this will have then implications around investment decisions potentially. This question is very complicated, in particular as we're going in right now with the specific energy price backdrop and, and what, where we where if we look at um, the, the energy mix of OECD countries as well as non-OECD countries, we see that in sort of the OECD countries, there has been a gradual kind of phasing out of coal. It makes up less than 20% of the total energy mix with renewables really coming very close to it, and there should be a, a switch in the near term. However, in non-OECD countries, um, coal still makes up a much significant, much larger chunk of the total energy supply, and renewables make up a lower proportion. And so, again, kind of watching you know, what these decisions will be and what they'll imply in terms of new investment opportunities will be important. For us here, takeaways in terms of companies um, will be for investors to to look at uh, kind of opportunities around green tech. So that implies, you know, renewables as the pace of deployment of renewables will likely need to accelerate if we want if, if we want to um, achieve this, this phasing out at all. Um, but secondly, also look for kind of broader investment opportunities around solutions related to just broadly clean air and, and 
green smart mobility as that is a subset um, of the kind of the broader ecosystem of solutions that are related to, to this uh, important item that we're watching. Third thing, and I think, Michelle, you hinted at this, um, we're watching what the discussions will be around setting a price on carbon. Um, where and how much would that look like? Uh, you know, what, what it would look like? Because that will have um, this kind of implications for companies depending on the jurisdictions where they operate. So we know currently that about 20% of global emissions are priced in somehow by either through either carbon taxes that are imposed by specific countries or they're under the jurisdiction of an emissions trading system, an ETS, where um, companies in specific sectors are subject to quotas of, of emissions that they have to comply with and, and participate in those markets. Um, so what we're watching here is whether there's a, there's a sort of additional uptake of additional emissions trading systems across different jurisdictions, as well as what the discussions will look like around the possibility of a carbon border adjustment tax, meaning um, sort of companies uh, being taxed on their carbon emissions in the places where they are selling their goods and services, not where not in their home country. Um, just a note on this, it seems unlikely really that the U.S. would support anything that looks like a global carbon border adjustment tax. So, but, but this was part of the initial European Union proposal, so, so it's an interesting thing to look for. And the investment takeaway really from this part of the discussion is that broadly um, energy uh, carbon uh, prices are going up. Uh, in, in the markets where they are regulated. And this means that for companies that are leading, that are ESG leaders, and their carbon intensity and they have better energy management policies, uh, they're likely to be more resilient. They're likely to be favored compared to their peers as we're seeing this ramp up and, and as we're watching what global discussion will look like. And then finally, fourth, um, all of what I talked about is primarily concerning this objective of mitigation, decarbonization, reducing emissions. Another thing that we think will be increasingly important, in particular as you know, we're seeing, as Michelle noted, the, these NDCs have been ambitious but, and are becoming more so, but, but aren't quite uh, sufficiently ambitious yet. We think that adaptation will increasingly become important. Um, so, so kind of the looking at whether companies and just broadly uh, countries are prepared for the increasing uh, impacts of climate change over time as they materialize. And here we think that, um, you know, as, as investors may consider looking for opportunities that are positioned for climate resilience to fully sustainable portfolios or look for companies that are, are sort of uh, innovating in areas that enable more um, resilience across water, across agriculture, really across multiple sectors. So, Michelle, taking into account what Amantia has shared with us, those notable private sector implications of steps taken by governments and recognizing that our listeners, our clients, very interested in the investment implications of the conference as COP26 gets closer and commences, what are some of the key themes investors should pay special attention to as opportunities moving forward? Yeah, you know, Amantia did a good job of outlining the uh, the goals or the themes of COP on mitigation and 
adaptation, mobilizing finance, and collaboration. Um, so I think some of the themes that I would be looking for, uh, when we talked about already, is what are the commitments? And not just you've made a commitment, but what are the strategies towards achieving those commitments, the tracking, the measurement, and the disclosure? It's all about how are you going to make practice or progress against these commitments, not just saying that we're going to do it. So how are we actually going to activate this? I think a second big area is this collaboration, and that's critical to making the progress. Climate change is too big an issue for any one entity, any country, any regulator, any company, or any individual to tackle on their own. We actually all need to work together and to make compromises in order to do that. And it's those diverging interests and then making compromises that's tough. So I think there's a few areas of collaboration or agreement that I'll be particularly interested to observe. One is how the wealthier developed nations and some of the poorer or emerging markets come together. Wealthy nations have benefited enormously from an investment ecosystem that's historically rewarded carbon-intensive industrialization. Today, most of the wealthier nations, not all, but most are in a position to and can afford to actually wean themselves off coal or move to electric vehicles. It's those emerging markets that are not only more susceptible to some of the physical risks of climate change, but are actually more likely to have their economies powered by coal. Can these nations reach a compromise um, that enables the emerging markets to protect themselves and still grow their economies while at the same time reducing their carbon footprint? That's going to be something that's critical to understanding what investment patterns or what investment returns in different types of markets are going to look like. Um, another area that Amantia mentioned is harmonizing regulations and standards. We're going to need clear rules of the game around the world. And this is where the collaboration theme starts to bleed into mobilizing finance. So one is climate measurement and disclosure. What metrics should be reported and how should we calculate them? How do we turn the typical backward-looking metrics of reporting scope one to scope three emissions into forward-looking metrics? Two companies or two countries could have the same emissions last year, but very different plans to decarbonize and very different paths forward. And it's that future that matters when we're evaluating investment decisions. And one of the most important areas, and Amantia mentioned this, is carbon markets, carbon pricing, and carbon offsets. They're, these are increasingly prevalent in the net zero commitments that we're seeing, but there's no universal market or price for carbon. And whether offsets are viewed as a viable part of a climate strategy or not actually varies widely between regions or even within a country. So until we get clarity on these issues, it's difficult for the financial markets to correctly price risk and return and the impact they can have. And the last area um, is collaboration between traditionally disparate organizations to engage with each other to actually develop meaningful solutions. So let me give you an example. So at AB, we've actually partnered with the Columbia School, um, so the Climate School at Columbia University and the Earth Institute to try to break down these barriers. You know, a few years ago, we realized that, first of all, we needed to educate all our investors on climate change because it was coming so, becoming so fundamental to our uh, investment management process. So we actually um, formed a partnership with Columbia to develop an investing in climate change curriculum that covered basic sciences, legal, regulatory, public policy frameworks, climate change solutions, how to translate that into financial analysis. And in 2020, we offered it to all our investors, our executive team, and our board. And in 2021, we threw it up into clients, expecting maybe 200 to 250 attendees. 
Over a thousand of the world's largest asset owners, including UBS, actually enrolled. And we're now pivoting our relationship with Columbia to research. Um, we became the founding member of their new corporate affiliates program at the Climate School. And we're helping them to think through how to develop new multidisciplinary programs. We're embarking on several longer-term research projects. And we're conducting a series of curated workshops for investors on climate change topics that they are researching today. So together, we can develop better solutions bring a business focus, scalability or commercialization earlier in the research process, and help us as asset managers allocate capital to ideas that can make a difference or to companies that are improving to address climate change. So I'm interested to see what other non-traditional partnerships or collaborations we're going to see coming out of COP that are actually going to lead to investable ideas. Well, Michelle, thank you for previewing and spotlighting those key themes that we should keep an eye out for as COP26 commences. So before we close out, maybe one more question for the podcast. And Amati and Michelle, I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on this. And Amatia, maybe what we can do is we will provide our guest, Michelle, with the final word. So Amatia, I'll ask you first, as investors work to take advantage of these opportunities created by climate action and global collaboration, what are some of the pressures in this field of investing? For example, Amatia, how do you see today's pricing and regulatory environment affecting investment prospects? Thanks, Dan. I actually think that we are, we, we've started to touch on this question in, in some way. So I would say um, just a couple of elements here that are important. One is today's um, energy crunch in particular is important because it serves as a reminder of um, the global energy demand, which in our view is, is only continued going to continue to increase in, just over the longer term um, as more countries uh, really are becoming more prosperous. And that doesn't necessarily mean that demand specifically for coal as a source of energy will, will specifically continue to increase. We think that renewables can become a, a really important part of this equation. But it also really underlines um, the, the, the word transition uh, the, in this sort of energy transition concept. And that will be something that it will be important for investors to watch and, and think about how they would diversify their investment portfolios, uh, thinking about the shorter term as well as the longer term term and thinking about traditional energy sources versus renewable energy sources as well as all of the technologies that are adjacent and are or are part of the supply chains here in providing these solutions as a way to be realistic and while diversifying and supporting these broader goals. So that's one thing to, to consider. A second thing is, um, you know, the, as, as Michelle really noted, there's, there's all of this uh, need for harmonizing across different regulatory regimes, and there's some work being done there. So considering really the different jurisdictions and how they impact companies is important, but also noting that a lot of companies are global and they operate uh, sort of across multiple jurisdictions. So thinking kind of what's the, the I guess, highest common denominator in, in terms of strictest or most generous incentives around these issues will, will from coming from governments from across the world will, will be important for investors to consider even regardless of where they sit in the world. And then finally, just overarching uh, as a comment, um, one thing that I think is important to consider is, is really timing, uh, especially as investors think about opportunities here 
in regards to their own portfolios, right? They need to think about what are their objectives in their investments, if they're shorter term or longer term. Um, and our view is that um, despite potential volatility and needs for adjustments in the shorter term, for long-term investment portfolios, it remains important to think about how climate will be um, impacting portfolios and, and what opportunities there look like over the longer term as the path uh, of uh, sort of the trajectory that we are on seems to, to be quite clear in terms of looking towards um, decarbonization, looking towards adaptation. Thank you, Amatia. And what about your thoughts, Michelle? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's a few things I would say. Is One, I think we are starting to see a recognition from corporations that addressing climate change is everyone's responsibility and fundamental to sustaining long-term cash flows. And corporations are feeling the pressure from all stakeholders, their shareholders and bondholders, their employees, their communities, and increasingly from regulators. Um, what we're seeing or what we're looking for for them, I think we're going to start to see better forward-looking disclosures, including targets, strategies, and initiatives. I think we're going to see ongoing disclosure of progress made. And what we'd like to see is aligning the corporate ecosystem to actually achieve that. What gets measured and compensated gets accomplished. So we are seeing the introduction of ESG metrics and climate metrics into executive compensation and filtering those down through the organization where it's appropriate. And for asset managers or investors, it's similar. The climate change is fundamental and that we need to incorporate it into all elements of our investment process. It's increasingly been being demanded by our clients, the asset owners, and increasingly by regulators. So we've kind of already discussed how researching and analyzing climate change leads to better decisions, but it's also critical um, once that decision's been made. Investors can and should engage. And, you know, we typically engage for two reasons, for insight, to understand what a company is doing and leverage that in our investment decision process, and for action, to encourage them to take decisions that are in the best interests of their long-term sustainable cash flows. And one little fact, you know, last year we did embark on a strategic ESG engagement campaign where we targeted over 350 of our largest holdings that didn't have either climate change targets or ESG metrics in executive compensation. Two interesting learnings. One, a lot of companies were actually taking action, but they weren't communicating or disclosing them. 45% of all companies actually had targets, and 75% of those targets were actually pretty good. But I just make you know, two other quick points. One is ESG and climate change are journeys. No one is expecting a company to become perfect overnight. It's progress and change that matters. And that's why understanding strategies, initiatives, targets, and progress is so important. And there's also a difference between decarbonizing a portfolio and decarbonizing of the world. We want to drive real change, reduce future emissions and emissions intensity. You can decarbonize a portfolio without driving any change. Just overweight, naturally low-carbon sectors like healthcare and encourage your hard-carbon holdings to divest their assets, potentially to private markets or to an owner that actually doesn't care as much about climate. But to actually decarbonize, the world needs infrastructure solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles. All that takes steel, cement, lithium, and cobalt. What we encourage all companies to do is to actually take action, control their own emissions, and make progress. And that's done through engagement. Well, Michelle Lamonti, a very productive session today, spotlighting and previewing the COP26 conference. Of course, there's plenty here we can follow up on, so perhaps we can look forward to having a follow-up conversation a bit down the pike. Uh, though, Amatia, Michelle, thank you very much again for your time and insights today. Appreciate it. A pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here today. 
Absolutely. And again, today we've been joined by Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Michelle Dunstan, Chief Responsibility Officer and Portfolio Manager with AB. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including, of course, the most recent edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication. For our clients of UBS, simply reach out to your financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly. The UBS Conversations podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.